0: I've been asked to give a talk on kenosis in Aquinas. I'm going to speak for around 45 minutes. I propose a lecture comprised of two parts. The first part looks into the exegesis of Philippians 2 in Aquinas' commentary on St. Paul, as well as in other works by Aquinas. And the second part, presents some elements about Trinitarian processions, missions, as well as two Trinitarian foundations of the kenosis of the sun that Aquinas develops in explicit reference to Philippians 2. My approach will be historical or systematic in a historical perspective. Although I'm reading Aquinas (laughs) with modern problematics in the background, I'm not going to project modern theories into my reading of Aquinas. As a preliminary, I must underline that at the time of Aquinas, the exegesis of Philippians 2 and the meaning of the son's kenosis, or ex inanitio, were non-problematic. Medieval authors do not offer an understanding of kenosis as it will be found later in modern times. On the one hand, medieval authors draw on the same patristic sources. I will mention some of them. In spite of some minor differences, their interpretations of the son's kenosis are close to one another. And, on the other hand, this will last until the eve of the Reformation. This is especially clear in Calvin. A couple of days ago, I reread his commentary on Philippians 2. Calvin explains that the Son's kenosis offers an example of humility, that the sun did not <coughs> abandon his divinity, that the sun did not diminish his power, glory, or other divine attributes, but he kept his divinity hidden for some time under the weakness of the flesh so that the majesty of his divinity was covered by the way by the veil of his humanity until Christ's exaltation made this majesty manifest to all this is what today some authors call a cryptic interpretation of Christ's kenosis cryptic in the sense that Christ's majesty was hidden for some time. First, in Aquinas, the notion of kenosis is both ethical and Christological before being Trinitarian. It's ethical insofar as St. Paul exhorts Christians to fraternal unity and humility. The example of, of Christ includes three moments. First, His majesty. Philippians 2.6, the form of God. Second, his humility in his incarnation and in his passion. And third, his exaltation, verses 9 to 11. The act of kenosis concerns the mystery of the incarnation for Aquinas. While the humiliation of Christ, verse 8, relates to the mystery of his passion. For Aquinas, St. Paul starts with Christ's majesty in verse 6, the form of God, Christ being equal to God, in order to emphasize, by contrast, his humility. And the core of humility is obedience. Aquinas underlines several times obedience in this context. Quote, the mode of Christ's humiliation and the sign of humility is obedience. On the other hand, Christians are called to participate in Christ's obedience so that they may have a share in his exaltation. This is Christ's example. It's text 1.1.2 on your handout. I read it. St. Paul says, therefore, since Christ thus humbled himself and was exalted for it, you ought to realize that if you are humbled, you shall also be exalted. There is no opposition between an ethical and uh, charismatic interpretation of Philippians 2 in Aquinas. The general framework of the is the example of Christ, moral interpretation, and it includes at its center the mystery of Christ, mysterium or sacramentum, Trinitarian and Christological interpretation. So the Christological doctrine verses 6 to 11 is included within a moral exhortation about humility and obedience. 1.2, for Aquinas, the subject of the kenosis is clearly the pre-existent person of the Son according to his divinity. That is, the Son as true God, equal to the Father, the Word of God, the Son of God, or even simply God, or the only begotten, or the true Son of God, and so on. In every case, conforming to a tradition of interpretation dominant about the pro in Fathers, the pre-existence of the Son, is clearly underlined. Quote, it is said that he was in the form of God. Therefore, he was in the form of God before taking the form of a servant, end quote. 1.3. Here is Thomas's explanation of the meaning of the verb ex in anivit, It's text 131. i I'm reading it he emptied himself. But since he was filled with the divinity, did he empty himself of that? No. Because he remained what he was and what he was not, he assumed. This is a central sentence. But this must be understood in regard to the assumption of what he had not, and not according to the assumption of what he had. For just as he descended from heaven not that he ceased to exist in heaven, but because he began to exist in a new way on earth, so he also emptied himself, not by putting off his divine nature, but by assuming a human nature. The divine immutability of the subject of the kenosis is clearly affirmed in words that literally uh, take up the exegesis of St. Augustine and St. Leo the Great. In particular, the formula, he remained what he was and he assumed what he was not, uh, an explanation that was central in Augustine. The kenosis is understood as the assumption of the human nature, that is to say, as the incarnation. In many other passages, Thomas expressly identifies the ex inanitio, or kenosis, of Philippians 2 with the hypostatic union in terms of Saint Cyril of Alexandria or the incarnation, that is to say, the union in the person. And in a great number of places, Aquinas is very firm regarding the immutability of inviolable permanence of the divine nature of the Son in his ex inanitio. In emptying himself, The son took the form of a slave without losing his divine nature. Uh, You can read some of the texts found uh, on the handout under 1, 3, 2. He did not lose the fullness of the form of God. The glorification did not absorb the lesser nature, nor did the the assumption lessen the higher, and so on. St. Thomas accords great importance to this aspect, so much that. He mentions it in citing the tome to Flavian of St. Leo the Great in the opening lines of the preface of his Catena Aurea, Lax text 132. That self emptying, whereby the invisible made himself visible, and the Creator and Lord of all things chose to join the ranks of mortals, was an act of mercy, not a failure of his power. Because the ex inanitio involves no edification, loss, or diminution of the divinity of the Son, it is necessary, therefore, to specify in what sense the Incarnation is an ex inanitio. And here is St. Thomas' explanation. I read text 133. The Apostle beautifully says that Christ emptied himself. For the empty is, op- is opposed to the full. For the divine nature is adequately full, because every perfection of goodness is there. But human nature, as well as the soul, is not full, but in potency to fullness, because it was made as a slate not written upon. Therefore, human nature is empty. Hence, St. Paul says, he emptied himself, because he assumed a human nature. The non-problematic understanding of Christ's kenosis is well expressed by the Latin adverb pulcre, literally, beautifully, nicely. The exegesis of Thomas is literal. The verb ex inanire is understood to the letter as to make empty. Therefore, semet ipsum ex inanivit signifies he made himself empty. Aquinas also know the word vacuatum, literally made empty, as an equivalent to ex inanitus. This exegesis is not, is not common among Aquinas' contemporaries. Its originality consists first in opposing, in opposing um, the emptiness of the humanity to the fullness of the divinity with reference to Colossians 2 9. And second, in understanding this emptiness as signifying the potentiality of the soul or of the human nature with respect to the acquisition or reception of a perfection or plenitude. Applied to the incarnation, this exegesis means that the kenosis of the Son of God concerns not only the assumption of a human nature, but also the human nature as such. A human nature that in itself is characterized by a state of emptiness. And in this way, the incarnation understood as the assumption of a human nature can indeed be understood as a self-emptying. By assuming a nature characterized by its emptiness, the divine Christ made himself empty, or he made himself something empty. This exegesis is close to the understanding of kenosis by Saint Cyril of Alexandria. In several places, Saint Cyril gave the following explanation of the son's kenosis. Texts 1, 3, 4 on the handout. I read. The Spirit proper to the Son is said to be given to Him from above because of His human element, and this is the kenosis. The one who, as God, gives and dispenses the Spirit is sanctified with us in that He is human, and this is what is called kenosis. To receive the name above every name by mode of grace, This is what is called kenosis and the redemptive lowering of the word. Kenosis consists in the fact that the divine word, by becoming man, puts himself in a position to receive. This is an essential uh, feature of Aquinas' understanding of kenosis. Kenosis consists in the fact that the divine word by becoming man, puts himself in a position to receive, and then actually receives. Already in origin, kenosis is opposed to plenitude. And Gregory of Nyssa made clear that while Christ's divine nature is immutable and full, his humanity is perfectible. So, kenosis means that the one who has the plenitude of divinity becomes empty so that, as man, he is in a condition to receive a fullness. And this fullness is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that Christ then pours out unto others. Now when Aquinas speaks of Christ's Genesis or Exanitio as a lessening minoratio, he refers this lessening to the assumption of her human nature. Let's read texts one, three, five. The Word of God emptied himself, that is to say, was made small, not by the loss of his own greatness, but by the assumption of human smallness. He is said to have emptied himself not by losing his fullness but because he took our littleness upon himself he emptied himself he made himself small not by putting off greatness but by taking on smallness so kenosis understood as the assumption of the smallness of our human condition is the constant interpretation of Thomas Aquinas in the same vein Aquinas uh, interprets Philippians 2, 6, 7 by means of the theme of the verbium abbreviatum, uh, the brief word of the Father, with explicit reference to Philippians 2. You can read uh, text 1, 3, 6 uh, yourself. The verbum breviatum. But an illuminating exegesis of Philippians 2 is to 6, 7, so the kenosis is found in Aquinas' explanation of Jesus's washing of the disciples' feet in John 13:4. I read text 137. And this comes from origin. Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments and girded himself with a towel. This action tells us three things about Christ. First, he was willing to help the human race, indicated by the fact that he rose from succor. Secondly, it indicates that he emptied himself, not that he abandoned his great dignity, but he did it but he hid it by taking on our smallness. Thirdly, the fact that he girded himself with a towel indicates that he took on our mortality, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of (coughs) man. This exegesis is close to um, uh, Origen's understanding of uh, Christ's kenosis. It understands the action of the washing of the feet as an explication of the kenosis. It underlines, first, the voluntary nature of the kenosis of of Christ. It is by his own will, freely, that the Son of God emptied himself. Secondly, the kenosis does not involve any diminution of the divine majesty of Christ, but it signifies the assumption of our human nature. On the one hand, Aquinas contrasts the majesty of the divinity and the smallness of our humanity. On the other end, Aquinas adds here an important element of exegesis, which I mentioned um, with reference to Calvin at the beginning. The divinity of Christ is not lost, but it is veiled or hidden in the incarnation. In his Catena on Matthew, Aquinas records origins exegesis Explained that in his ex inanitio or kenosis, Christ exercises a limited power in comparison with the great power he will uh, exercise at his glorious return at the end of time. And third, uh, the Son of God has assumed not only humanity, but also the weaknesses of our condition. Aquinas mentions here mortality which one can extend to the defectus that the Son has assumed, with the exception of sin. According to this exegesis, Philippians 2 and John 13 reveal the whole mystery of Christ as the incarnate Son of God. The mystery is disclosed and given within the dispensatio, the economy. 1.4. Aquinas constantly insists in a notable and oft-repeated manner, on the personal identity of the subject and term of the kenosis. For him, a correct reading of Philippians 2 excludes all major heresies made by Christ, from Adoptionism to Monophysitism, but especially Nestorianism, including every Christology for which there would be two hypostases in Christ, or for which the union of God and man in Christ would be accidental. Aquinas' exegesis is resolutely anti-Nestorian. This is one of its most striking characteristics for us today. As a matter of fact, according to Saint Cyril of Alexandria, there is no true kenosis in Nestorian Christology. If the union does not take place in the divine person of the word, And if Christ is understood in terms of the word inhabiting a man, then the divine word cannot be the subject of the kenosis. Therefore, Aquinas denies that in his Exinanitio, the son assumed a human person or hypostasis. The former servi, the form of a slave, does not mean a human supposit, but a human nature. Nestorianism is the principal error that Thomas seeks constantly to avoid when he explains the meaning of Philippians 2.7. And in many places, when he refers to these verse, he denies that the incarnation boils down to an inhabitation by grace. This is precisely the reason why he judges the idea of a kenasis of the Father or a kenasis of the Holy Spirit as false, or even absurd. All this shows that in the kenosis of Philippians 2, Aquinas understands very precisely the incarnation of the Son, with an anti-Nestrian accent placed upon the personal identity and unity of the subject of the kenosis. Text 1.4, I read it. He emptied himself. Therefore, it is the same who was emptied and who emptied himself. And this is the son, because he himself emptied himself. Therefore, the union is in the person. In this exegesis, Aquinas underlines the truth of the assumed humanity and its conditions. The truth of the body of Christ and of his human soul is often emphasized, as well as the ordinary way he lived as man among men. For Aquinas, Christ's form of a slave implies not only that, as man, Christ was obedient to to his heavenly father, (coughs) obedience to the father, but also that he was obedient to his parents during his childhood, and, more importantly, that he was subject to the governing authorities and that he lived under the law. The concrete and historical identity of Christ's humanity is well shown. And of course, Aquinas underlines the conformity of nature between the man Christ and other human beings. This even appears in the preaching of Aquinas. You can read text 1.5 uh, yourself. It's from uh, homily by Aquinas but I read text 1, 5, 2. He assumed all the defects and properties associated with the human species except sin. Therefore, St. Paul says, and being found in human form, namely in his external life, because he became hungry as man and tired and so on, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without seeing, without sinning. Afterwards he appeared upon earth and lived among men. Rogue 3. Christ's kenosis thus includes all that in the Summa Theologiae Aquinas treats under the rubric of the defects of the body and of the soul that Christ voluntarily assumed in his incarnation, that is corporeal passibility, innocent, innocent passions of his soul. And all that concerns all that concerns uh, his state of viator, as well as Christ's life with other human beings. In uh, question forty of the third part, I will come back to this later. The exegesis of the word habitus in Philippians two seven, et habitu inventus ut homo, literally. And inhabit found as man, furnishes the occasion for three clarifications. First, Aquinas denies that the subject of the kenosis has undergone a change with respect to his form of God. Second, Aquinas affirms that the assumed human nature has indeed undergone a change, not an essential change, of course but a change in the sense that by virtue of the union in the person, this human nature was changed for the better because it was filled with grace and truth. And third, the kenosis finds its exercise in the conversation with men. That is, in the way the Incarnation Son lived with others, taught them and saved them by his words and deeds and by his conversation with them. As Emmanuel Durand has shown in a brilliant article you really have to read uh, with reference to St. Cyril of Alexandria and St. Thomas, the permanence of the divine identity of the word in his kenosis is a condition of the truth of Christ being God seen by man. As uh, we read in Baruch a verse Aquinas refers to in his exegesis of um, Philippians two see the end of um, my ref- see the reference at the end of one five two on the handout, and this requires that the kinesis did not change christ 's divinity. A final clarification. Is required with regard to the action of God the Trinity in the world. In creating, God does not withdraw from the world, but rather he is present in the world. Creatures exist in the measure to which Christ, uh, sorry, creatures exist in the measure to which God is present in them. Creatures exist and act in the measure to which God exists and acts in them. By the way, it's the first chapter of uh, the, the third book um, <laughs> Father Blankenhorn uh, presented uh, before my talk. When God acts in the world, first, he does not withdraw in any way from creatures. Quite the contrary. He communicates to them a participation in his goodness. And second, God does not lose anything of himself. Text 161, God communicates his goodness to creatures so that nothing is subtracted from him. And this theological principle is explicitly applied to Christ's kenosis. Text 162, the Son of God emptied himself Nothing was subtracted from the fullness or greatness of his divinity. This matters because for Aquinas, God's power is not shown in the fact that God would give it up so as to tolerate secondary causes. But God's power consists precisely in the fact that he does communicate to creatures the power of being secondary causes. And this, by being present and by acting within acting secondary causes the incarnate son cannot be rendered incapable of making use of his divine power even voluntarily and for a limited time and similarly because of divine simplicity christ's divine nature cannot receive from his human nature according to aquinas come to my second point second chapter in many places aquinas interpretation of philippians 2 employs the vocabulary of divine missions. This vocabulary is already found in his patristic sources. In this context, Aquinas explains, text 2:11. the divine person who is sent does not begin to exist where he did not previously exist, nor cease to exist where he was, but this divine person begins to be there in some way in which he was not there before. So that the divine person's mission means a new way of existing in another. This is quite important for understanding uh, Philippians 2 uh, 7. These expressions and other similar ones, as in found in text 2, 1, 2, are employed Uh, precisely for explaining the meaning of Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. And this leads to apprehending Philippians 2, 6, 7 in the sense of the incarnation understood as the visible mission of the Son. Aquinas excludes an economic genesis of the person of the Father and the person of the Holy Spirit. He therefore expressly rejects any economic kenosis of the Trinity. More profoundly still, the Trinitarian doctrine of Aquinas excludes an imminent kenosis, the kenosis of the Trinity in its inner life. Indeed, St. Thomas apprehends the Trinitarian processions as the eternal communication of the plenitude of the divine nature in the perfect simplicity of God, which excludes all mutability, because God is pure act. The intra Trinitarian processions amount to a pure order, ordo, of origin, that excludes any confusion of the divine persons. And the order, the Trinitarian order, signifies that one person is distinguished from the other according to origin, insofar as the Son is begotten by the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Trinitarian origins, generation and spiration, bring about neither a change nor a diminution of the persons who are the subject of the act of generation or spiration. And they imply no distance, no separation between the divine persons. Further, for Aquinas, the divine processions and these matters did not, the divine processions did not imply any passivity in the son who is begotten or in the Holy Spirit, who is spirated. To proceed is an act. Text 231. I read it. Generation signifies relation by way of an operation. And although to beget does not belong to the Son, the Son is not begetting a person, this does not mean that there would be some operation belonging to the Father and not to the Son. Rather, and this is the, the, what I want to underline, it is by one and the same operation that the Father begets and the Son is born, but this operation is in the Father and in the Son according to two distinct relations. Aquinas strictly maintains, as a fundamental rule, see text 2.3.2, that the only passive that we posit among the divine persons is grammatical. According to our mode of signifying, we speak of the Father begetting and of uh, the Son being begotten. But this operation, but the operation of begetting and of being begotten, is one and the same operation. What is at stake here is this: this operation is found in the Father and in the Son in the mode of two distinct relations. Now, can we understand the eternal receptivity of the sun as a condition for his temporal mission and for his kenosis, as Father Thomas Joseph White once suggested? Yes, but we have to keep in mind the analogical meaning of receiving when applied to the generation of the sun. This receiving, according to Aquinas, is a pure act, and it consists in a pure relation, a pure order, with no passivity. Following Aquinas' rules about analogy, what is found in Christ's humanity, in the mode of human obedience, when transferred into God, consists in the pure relation of affiliation, order of origin of the Son to the Father. And with regard to the sending, the mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit, it involves no distance or separation of the persons who are sent in relation to the persons who sent. And it excludes all change in the person sent. And for Aquinas, this matters for the understanding of Philippians 2. I read texts 2 4 1. The temporal procession. Is not essentially different from the eternal procession, but the temporal procession only adds a reference to a temporal effect. Our second text, a mission includes the eternal procession and adds something, namely a temporal effect. So, the eternal procession remains in its immutability, and all change implied in the mission is found in the creature not in the divinity of the present sent. The newness that is found in God's effects implies no newness in God himself. And this applies to creation as well as to the son's kenosis, as understood by St. Thomas. Text 242 makes it explicit. The relation is real in the creature, in Christ's human nature. But it is of reason in God, in Christ's divine nature, since it does not arise from any change in God. So the son's mission in the flesh is the manifestation of his eternal generation. Okay, His life in the flesh, his works and deeds, his words and deeds, is the manifestation of his eternal relation to the Father. As Aquinas puts it in text 2.5, the mission shows the origin. Aquinas' theology of the Trinity in its inner life is founded in the economy, as described by the scriptures, but not as if the economy were the pure, simple, or transparent reflection of the theologia. Conditions, actions, and passions pertaining to Christ's humanity are referred to his person as the son of God with a strict understanding of the hypostatic union, of the relationships between the human nature and the divine person, Of the communication of idioms a property of the human nature is never attributed to the divine nature but it is attributed to the divine person and a strict sense of analogy so christ's human obedience manifests in a human in a human way christ's human obedience manifests in a human way an eternal property which in the divinity only concerns the trinitarian order If there is a transcendental condition of the possibility of the incarnation, it's not found in an eternal Trinitarian humility, but rather in God's goodness, merciful love, and philanthropy. Here, we have to understand that Aquinas' Trinitarian theology is clearly founded in the economy, uh, but that it is complex, involving three steps. And the second step is the elaboration of a speculative doctrine of the Trinity, the third step being um, uh, theological exegesis, where um, speculative, a speculative doctrine of the Trinity is applied to uh, Christ's agency uh, in, in the world. And this implies uh, Aquinas' metaphysics about God's relations with the world. Now, in the context of the exegesis of Philippians 2, Aquinas presents two Trinitarian foundations of the kinosis of the sun. The first foundation consists in the notion of divine person in relation to the notion of nature. In his disputed question on De Unione Verbi Incarnati, Aquinas formulates the following objection against the doctrine of the union in the person, the hypostatic union uh, following um, Cyril of Alexandria. It's text 261. I read it. Nothing that is included in another stretches out to something outside. But the suppositum of any nature is found in that nature. Hence, it is called a thing of nature. So since the word is the suppositum of divine nature, it is not able to stretch out to another nature so as to be its suppositum, unless only one nature is brought about. And here is Aquinas' response, text 262. The person of the word, yes, is included under the nature of the word, nor can it extend itself to something beyond. But the nature of the word, by reason of its own infinity, includes every finite nature. Thus, when the person of the word assumes a human nature, it does not extend itself beyond the divine nature, but the greater receives what is beneath it. Hence, it is said in Philippians 2, that while the Son of God was in the form of God, he emptied himself, not laying aside the greatness of the form of God, but assuming the smallness of human nature. In this answer, Aquinas maintains that the person of the word cannot extend itself beyond the divine nature. But this does not imply that the person of the word cannot assume the created nature. And the reason of this affirmation lies in the infinity of the divine nature of the word. The created nature assumed by the word does not add anything to the divine nature, since the divine nature cannot receive any addition. The divine nature and the human nature cannot be conumerated, because they are not of the same order. Since God is absolutely simple, he is beyond every genus. God is not part of any genus. He is the principle of all genera, outside the order of all creatures. And not only is the divine essence outside the order of creatures, but the divine nature or essence also contains in itself, in a supereminent mode, all the perfections that are found in creatures. Text 263. The divine essence is above every genus, embracing in itself, literally comprehending in itself, the perfections of all genera. And the reference to the Sons Ex in Philippians 2. Makes it quite clear. Because of the infinity of his divine nature, which includes every finite nature, the person of the Son can assume a smaller nature in the unity of his own person. So, the infinity that the person of the Son possesses in virtue of his divine nature allows to understand or to account for the Son who has become what he was not without ceasing. To be what he was and the summa theology <coughs> offers a similar teaching you can read yourself text 264 in the context of the incommunicability of uh, the person aquinas here attributes um, the infinity not to the nature but directly to the divine person itself so that Christ's human nature, the form of slave, is personalized uh, in and by the divine person of the Word. Because of the infinity of the personality of the Word, which formally includes divine subsistence, the person of the Word can subsist in two natures by substantifying or personalizing uh, the human nature in himself so that the Incarnate Word is a person of a human nature. As a result, the first Trinitarian foundation, the first Trinitarian foundation of Christ, Kenosis in Aquinas, lies in the infinity of the person of the Word. That is, in the infinity of his divine subsistence and personality by virtue of his personal relation, affiliation. And the second, this is my last point, the second Trinitarian foundation of the ex inanitio of the sun is found in his explanation of the forma dei, the in Philippians 2, 6. Aquinas knows the identification of forma with nature of essence, which is found in many of his patric- patristic sources. But in his commentary t- on the letter to the Philippians, Aquinas is not. Satisfied with a pure and simple identification or equivalence between form and nature. Text 2.7. Why does St. Paul say in the form rather than in the nature? Because this belongs to the proper names of the Son in three ways, for he is called the Son, the Word, and the image. First, the Son is the one who is begotten, and the end of begetting is the form. Therefore, to show the perfect Son of God, he says in the form, as having the form of the Father perfectly. The form is what is communicated. Two, similarly, the word is not perfect unless it leads to the knowledge of the thing's nature. And so the word of God is said to be in the form of God because he has the entire nature of the Father. The Son, as word, expresses all the being of the father. 3 Similarly again, an image is not perfect unless it has the form of that which is of that which it is the image. He is the splendor of the father's glory and bears the very stamp of his substance. This trinitarian interpretation is quite interesting. In Philippians 2, morphē or forma or form refers to the divine nature inasmuch as divine nature is possessed by the Son. That is to say, the divine nature according to the proper mode that it has in the person of the Son. Forma here refers to the nature first insofar as the Son receives this nature through his generation from the Father, second, insofar as the Father's nature is perfectly expressed in the word of the Father, and third, insofar as the Son, being the perfect image of the Father, perfectly reflects the Father's glory. By associating Formadei with the names proper to the Son, St. Thomas interprets this Formadei in the light of the personal property of the Son the personal property of the son signified by his three proper names. Thus, the point of departure of the kenosis is found in the person of the son inasmuch as the son possesses the very nature of the father in his proper mode, which is being the son, word, and image of the father, that is, in his relation to the father. Now, since this is very close to the explanation that in his synthetic works Thomas puts forward to show the fittingness of the incarnation of the Son, we may state that the relational personality of the Son as Son, word, and image, meaning his his relation to the Father, accounts for his kenosis, for his life of obedience in the condition of a slave, and for his exaltation. Not in the sense of necessary reasons, but in the sense of reasons of fittingness. In a summary and as a conclusion, Trinitarian foundations of the kenosis of the sun bring us back to the teaching of Aquinas on the assumption of human nature by the divine person of the word and on the fittingness of the incarnation of the Son as word, that is to say, to the teaching of the first questions of the tertiary powers of the Summa Theologiae. Thank you very much for your patience. I see that I've been three minutes longer than I thought. Thank you very much for your talk. Um Certainly the points uh, from David Gionghe David for, the, for just, uh, the idea that uh, some of the gene is beyond other How is it how do we describe then um, participation of the humanity? For instance, we participate in God in a certain sense. Can we say that same thing for this humanity that participates in the uh, in the person of the word? And if we can say that, is it different than our participation? How would we Well, there is an essential distinction between um, the relation of Christ's humanity and ours with reference to uh, the divine nature. When Aquinas puts forward the idea of uh, the divine nature as embracing all perfections, this is in order to account for the divine person of the Son. Assuming a human nature uh, into his own person, that is, for accounting, uh, that is, Aquinas uh, here accounts for the human nature as subsisting as the nature of a divine person, so that the divine, the, the human nature is personalized within the divine person. The human nature is personalized and subsists within the divine person. And this is why he has recourse to the infinity of uh, the divine nature or the divine person, to account for the fact that uh, uh, the divine nature or person does not extend itself to something outside, because uh, since the divine nature, and therefore person, is beyond uh, everything created, it can assume something created without ceasing to be uh, the inviolable nature or person um, uh, within God. Whereas when uh, we talk about our relation to, uh, to God, we talk about, about grace. Uh, well, your question uh, leads us back to the difference between uh, what Aquinas calls uh, the grace of union and uh, sanctifying grace, and the grace of union, as you know, is nothing else than the eternal being of the Son being communicated to his humanity. Whereas in our case, it's a participation uh, by grace, but a created participation, a created participation by grace um, to God. So I'm not sure uh, I give uh, an adequate answer. Uh, perhaps I would summarize it this way. Uh, in the case of the sun, the divine uncreated personality of the sun is given to his humanity. In our, cra- in our case, um, the gifts by which we participate in God are created. It's not about uh, a divine being or divine personality being given uh, to us. So it's, uh, Aquinas doesn't express it in these terms, but it's, it's about the difference between the uncreated order and the created order. Thank you very much, Father, for the talk. Um, this question might sound a little bit ridiculous, but I'm not trying to silly. Don't speak too fast. Sorry. Remember that my languages are, are just uh, French uh, and German and some Italian, not English. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my question is, I find it most difficult to understand the kinosis when considering the infant price. And the reason why is because I think I associate personhood with mental thought. With? Mental thought or consciousness. Yeah. And so it's easier to posit that in a grown man, Jesus, rather than the infant Jesus. There seems to be a tendency toward Nestorianism when I think about like, the folk gnosis of Christ's infinite humanity, mm-hmm. could you help me sort of wrestle with that? Well, of course, this, uh, your question uh, uh, leads us to, uh, to the question, what, what is person? And clearly enough, uh, Aquinas has a metaphysical understanding of the person in terms of subsistence, of subsistence, rational nature, and uh, let's say action, principle or subject of action. But uh, when he speaks of um, of Christ or of you, of us, in terms of uh, person, I mean, he first, mean, he first means something uh, that subsists in itself by itself and in a rational nature. So uh, certainly this is uh, the foundation for uh, the psychological uh, traits of the person and the relations a person then develops. I mean, the development of uh, mind uh, and relation to relations to, to others. But uh, these uh, psychological traits are grounded upon a metaphysical understanding in terms of uh, subsistence subsistence and nature i would say that in aquinas uh, there is no opposition or competition between this metaphysical approach of the person in terms of subsistence and nature and the psychological or uh, phenomenological uh, dimension of the person the action of the person and so on uh, and uh, sociality but uh, the substantial and natural aspect uh, comes comes first and is the foundation. And uh, it's necessary when we read Aquinas, we don't have to be uh, to to uh, I mean to agree with him. But if you want to understand him, we have to we have to be aware that um, the notions of subsistence and <coughs> rational nature. Uh, are uh, uh, in the foreground for, for him. And this is uh, what he has in mind when he constantly avoids uh, any Nestorian interpretation uh, or the assumptus homo. And for this you have Thomas Joseph White because he's an expert of uh, the assumptus homo. Not that he teaches the assumptus homo, but he, I mean, he knows <laughs> the <problematic laughs> well enough. <laughs> But it's striking. I mean, this instance—I uh, don't remember which text, which text—on the subject and the term of the kenosis. It's, it's, it's essential for Aquinas. He himself emptied himself, uh, and, and this is central to him. If we could not say that, there would be no real kenosis. Thank you, Father. My question concerns the point from St. Cyril of Alexandria that the reception of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of the humanity of Christ yeah. is equated with the kenosis. Yeah. And my question is, that sounds something like a Trinitarian inversion in as much as there is a difference in order. Yeah. How is this not a Trinitarian inversion, or do you think it would be? So that yeah. Uh, I'll leave the Trinitarian inversion uh, to you and to other people. Um, so because here, uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria, because St. Cyril has two understandings, I mean, two dominant understandings of the Christ, of Christ's kenosis. I mean, Christ's kenosis, is as, uh, an important theme in Saint uh, Cyril. Perhaps he's one of the first theologians uh, who gave so much emphasis to the notion of kenosis. His first understanding is that of the incarnation. Kenosis is identified with the hypostatic union, uh, first with the incarnation, and then in the, in the Nestorian controversy with the hypostatic union in, in the strongest sense. Uh, but then, when he asked, and this in all periods of sensorial, from the beginning to the end, when he asks what uh, Genesis, uh, uh I mean, kenesis consists in becoming man, okay, something, I mean, it's a lessening, uh, it's uh, an emptying, but why empty? And sensorial uh, developed the idea of the, um, receptivity of Christ's humanity, because uh, although his notion of fuses is not quite clear, as, as, you, as you know, I mean, his understanding, his use of the word nature is ambivalent. But uh, I mean, Christ's, uh, the kenosis, uh, kenosis here concerns only Christ's humanity, or Christ's person by virtue of his humanity. As you know, Saint Cyril has a very clear understanding of the communication of idioms, in the sense that a property of the divine nature is attributed not to the divine nature, but uh, to um, the, the divine uh, apostasis of, of the Son. So it's by virtue of his human nature that one can speak of the word, of the divine person, of the word undergoing. Uh, Kinosis, as we say that uh, uh, he, he the divine person of the word died on the cross or was born from, from was born from uh, the virgin Mary now um, it 's because I think it 's because of uh, the idea of uh, emptiness or of becoming empty what and um, what does this becoming empty means um, being um, being uh, receptive to a fullness or being in potency, as Aquinas would put it later, uh, but uh, being uh, uh, in the condition of receiving between, because uh, as as God, Christ in his divine nature is not in the condition of suffering, of. Uh, of, of uh, yeah, like right. uh, going through all the developments a human being uh, knows and experiences, and so uh, Christ as God cannot uh, go through the the process of of receiving. He received the human the divine nature by his generation, but as and aligned this divine receiving is a pure action, and it's real identi It's really, uh, I mean. As an operation, it's identical with the, the very act of the father. It differs only from the act of the father insofar as a relation of affiliation is different from the relation of paternity, I mean, which is a, a very strict understanding uh, of uh, divine generation. So um, in his human nature, there is a receptivity of the son, a receptivity that, first of all, for Cyril, Saint Cyril concerns uh, uh, sanctification. I mean, his, I mean Christ's humanity being filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, and then pouring out the Holy Spirit because he was filled with it. And so, uh, this is the pneumatological element of the Trinitarian interpretation of uh, Christ's kenosis, kenosis in, in Saint Cyril. I mean, Christ as man being in the condition of receiving the the Holy Spirit and um, or, last text, of receiving the name above every name. But this is referred to his humanity in a very strict understanding of the communication of ideas. So it was a long response. Uh, I hope uh, I was not completely uh, outside of the area in question. Please do me thank the